Hello everyone, I'd like to welcome you to Professional Oklahoma Educators Bite Size Learning Podcast, where bite-sized changes can have a big impact in the classroom. This is Season 2, Episode 4. I'm Jason Bings, a host of this podcast. In today's episode, we're going to look at one of the ways that you can build relationships with your students that is often considered an unconventional way to do that, and that's through interventions. And so this overlooked way to build relationships is one that we often think of as negative or disciplinary or uh, employing some sort of corrective actions. And those may be true, but if you handle them correctly, they can actually strengthen the relationships you have with your students. So here are six intervention techniques to help you strengthen your relationships in your classroom. All right, so the first one is nonverbal intervention. Many of you probably use these and don't even realize that you are. These are those minor corrections to behaviors that are made with either a look or a hand gesture or some sort of a positive interaction that doesn't interrupt instruction at all. Remember, this is nonverbal, so you're not saying anything at this point. What you're trying to do is catch distractions before they become big interruptions. And it's critical that this intervention just be a part of the natural flow of instruction and not take away from the lesson itself. It's also very important to be consistent with your nonverbal interventions. So if one person is behaving in a certain way and you intervene on their behalf and then another student does the same thing, You also need to make sure that you intervene on behalf of that student as well. All right, so remember, these are nonverbal. So uh, a look, some people have that raised eyebrow that they do that catches the attention of a student. They make eye contact with a student to let them know that they're aware of what they're doing and try to refocus them that way. It might just be proximity. So you move in the general direction of that student and stand close to them but do so in a non-confrontational way so that it doesn't put them on the defensive. Remember, your goal here is to get them back into the lesson with as small an interruption and, in fact, with no interruption at all. All right, so the second one, after nonverbal intervention, would be positive group correction. All right, so you may be asking yourself, what are positive group corrections? Well, these are those small verbal cues that you give to the entire group as a way to refocus them. This should be just a few short words or phrases. They have relatively little impact on the flow of the lesson. So you're teaching the lesson, you step out for two or three seconds with a phrase that's going to draw them back in and refocus them, then you're right back into the lesson again. So what you're going to do is use phrases that describe the expected behavior and you're going to do so in a way that remains positive in your tone and you immediately return to instruction. At this point you're still not calling out any students by name because with this intervention you want everyone's focus to stay on the lesson and not shift to the person that you're really trying to get to focus. So if you call out a name everybody's going to look that direction and you're actually going to have the opposite effect of what you wanted because everybody's attention is away from the lesson and on that other student. 
So we have nonverbal interventions. We have positive group corrections. And next is going to be anonymous individual correction. Now this could be a follow-up to that positive group correction that we mentioned just a little bit ago, uh, but you're going to narrow down the focus. So you're still not calling out students by name. This is anonymous, but you're defining how many are not performing the expected behavior. So in the, the, first, uh, the first one that we mentioned a second ago, the positive group correction, you may say that at this point I need to see everybody writing. So there's your positive group correction. Your anonymous individual correction is going to be uh, something along the same lines, but now you're going to say, I need two more students to begin writing. So you've narrowed down so that everybody knows there are just a few people left. It may be that there are five or six that aren't writing. But if you say, I need two more, that's going to make everybody think that it's them that you're talking about individually. And so they're going to try to refocus and, and get cued into what you're wanting them to do. Again, you've not made this personal at this point. You have not called on anybody by name. You're just trying to get those that are off task to shift their focus and begin working on what you need them to do. Next on the list is the private individual correction. So if the previous techniques haven't worked, it may be time to deal specifically with the individual. To do this, give the class a very specific task they can work on while you make the correction. So you're going to go to the student and you're going to privately discuss why the student needs to perform the expected task. You're going to do this in a lowered voice so it's clear that you're not wanting to make a spectacle out of this situation and you do not want to make this into a power struggle. All right, so what we're really wanting to do here is to outline why the student needs to begin whatever task you've assigned. And so you're going to be as specific as possible, tell them why they need to begin that task and what the benefits are to them and to the class. Remember, this isn't about you. It's about their learning and their involvement and how it impacts the rest of the class. All right, so the next one after the private individual correction is the private individual precise praise. This one is very critical and it's one that we often overlook. So if the only time that you're having a private conversation with students is when you're correcting behaviors, they're going to dread any time that you come close to them and try to interact. So what you need to do is try to split your time between the private individual corrections and the private individual precise praise. So correction and praise, make sure there's a good balance there. This is going to help you build trust with your students. And remember, these are not simply good jobs. They need to be very, very precise. They need to point out something very specific about what, what they did. So if they used a certain phrase, make sure that you highlight that and tell why that phrase was important. Or if they have listed all of their steps, make sure that you tell them that. So if it's a math problem that they're working on, tell them, I appreciate you listing out all of those steps. That makes it easier when we're looking through it to see if there are any mistakes and we can outline it and correct the problem a lot quicker.
All right, so the next technique is the lightning quick public correction. This is one that you only want to use when it is absolutely necessary. And in this case, you're calling out a student by name, you're describing the correct behavior, and then you praise a group for displaying the correct behavior. A lot of times we're gonna reserve this one for when it's a severe behavior that a student is going to either get themselves hurt or somebody else hurt in the process. And so we wanna quickly get them away from that or if they're going to be a major disruption to learning. So the lightning quick public correction, you make that correction and then you try to restore that relationship quickly and you praise those that are on task. Now knowing when to intervene can be one of the greatest challenges for us as teachers. So when do we step in? When do we let it go? So I want you to keep three things in mind on this. First of all, you don't want to create a power struggle in your classroom. That should never be your goal. Secondly, you don't want to create an adversarial atmosphere either. So that's similar to creating that power struggle. It should never be an us versus them. It should never be I'm the authority figure, I'm the boss, my way or the highway type attitude. It should all be relational. But then you don't want to be so lax that your students get by with everything. So how do you find this balance between being the authority without being overbearing or dictatorial? So one of the keys to this is to intervene quickly but do so in a way that maintains the dignity of the students and your own dignity. In order to do that, we've got a few questions that we wanna, wanna keep in mind and help us focus that. So what are your expectations of students in your classroom? So make sure you can answer that question and make sure you tell them the answer to that question. What are you willing to tolerate in your classroom? Remember, whatever you're willing to tolerate is what you're going to get. So if you tolerate this behavior this time, you can expect it's going to, to spread throughout the room. So what you tolerate is going to be the defining limits of the culture of your classroom. There should be no distinction between what you expect and what you tolerate. If you expect a certain behavior out of students, you shouldn't tolerate anything different those two should be identical. If they're not in line, you're going to struggle to be effective in the classroom. You have to be consistent as well. So if you allow something one day, but not the next, or if you allow one student to get by with it, but not another, you're going to have a major class culture problem. So be consistent, be fair, treat all of your students the same. Even if one person is acting out over and over again, make sure you treat them just as well as you treat the student that never messes up and never steps out of line and never falls away from your expectations. Along those same lines, always keep your composure. When you begin to show how upset you are, the situation quickly escalates and you lose all credibility with your students. You're also going to destroy any positive relationships you might have established. Another thing to keep in mind, 
You can demand respect from your students, but you'll never get it. Respect is earned through trust. Your responses to students should be firm and calm. To enable yourself to do this, follow these steps. Number one, catch it early. The sooner you can intervene, the better. Your goal should be to keep your students engaged in the learning process. If you choose to wait and ignore when students are off task or distracting, you're condoning their actions. Many teachers struggle in the classroom, not because they have a bad plan, but because they tolerate more than they should. This doesn't mean you become an authoritarian ogre, but when students are not meeting expectations, you need to intervene using one of the techniques mentioned previously. Number two, value purpose over power. This one is critical to success for you and your students. I've been in many classrooms where students were obedient and silent, but the room felt cold and the students were completely disengaged and they weren't mastering the content at all. These teachers were more focused on their authority and power and completely disregarded their purpose. If our goal is for our students to master the content, but we don't have a positive relationship with them, we will never reach our destination. When you intervene, do so in a way that does not destroy the relationship you have with your students and do so in a way that doesn't turn them off to the learning process. Number three, say thank you. Thank you may be your strongest praise statement. When you recognize students following your instructions, give them credit for it. This could be the whole group through the whole group praise. This could be individual personal praise. What you're doing is acknowledging the correct behavior and giving a model for other students to follow. Many of your students may never hear please and thank you. So if you can demonstrate genuine gratitude when they follow instructions, it increases the likelihood that they're going to comply quickly. Number four, use universal language. This is something that many effective teachers do without ever realizing that they're doing it. Universal language takes out the, I need you to do this and replaces it with, we need, to do, need you to do this. Or instead of pointing out an individual, you're asking the entire class to model behavior. This language implies that the expectations are not personal preferences, but they're group norms, they're group expectations. This is how we behave as a society. This is how things work in our classroom. If you ask the class to look like a scholar or look like a, a bronco or, or a tiger or whatever, and fill in the blank with your mascot, then you're giving them cues to meet a universal norm and not calling out individual students. So this helps maintain their dignity and yours. It also decreases the opportunity for them to get defensive. Number five, smile. Look like you enjoy your job. Now, some of you may have been told by somebody at some point not to smile until Christmas. Whoever told you that had absolutely no clue what they were talking about. So what I'm saying is start your class with a smile. Doing so creates an environment of trust and it demonstrates confidence in what you're doing. 
If you start your class with a scowl or a look of concern or of confusion, you immediately create an atmosphere of mistrust in yourself and your abilities. Now, I'm not suggesting you have an obviously fake smile that doesn't fit your personality or your teaching style. But if you look like you hate your job, your students are going to hate your class. And they'll make you hate your job even more. Sometimes a smile can be used as a great nonverbal intervention, too. Because they see you noticing that they're off track. But you're not going to let it interfere with the learning process or destroy your love for what you do. So you can use that as a tool to help get students refocused and it kind of stirs thoughts in the back of their mind. They're wondering why you're smiling when they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Number six is called the confirmation glance. So use this technique after you make a request of a student or group. So you give the instruction or the request, then you walk away signaling that you trust that they're going to follow through and then you glance back to confirm that they're actually meeting your expectations. This small amount of time is often enough for students to regain their composure and make the right choice. Sometimes you can even tell them what you're doing. For instance, you can say, I'm going to go check on Malachi's question and when I look back this direction, I expect to see you working on the next question. You will need to have some consequences and some follow-through in this if they don't comply. But oftentimes, your calm, dignified attitude in those situations is going to generate the compliance you need and get students refocused and on task. Whatever you do in this situation, do not turn it into a power struggle. Remember, purpose over power. Number seven, steady at the helm. Remain calm. If you lose your composure, you're modeling for your students that doing so is okay in your classroom. If they know that their behavior can set you off, they will try to see how often they can do it. I think back to my middle school days when we had teachers we knew we could push over the edge, and we did our absolute very best to do so. It wasn't just the troublemakers that were guilty of this. Even your best students will join in if the entire class is involved. So if you remain unwavering and steady, you will see less and less of this type of behavior from your students because they know it gets them nowhere. Ultimately, the practices you employ in your classroom should always work to establish, retain, and restore appropriate relationships with your students. Whatever you do, you need to be careful not to react in a way that is detrimental to the learning environment needed for successful teaching. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Please share and comment to let us know how we can help you and others. You may leave your comments in your podcatcher of choice, but if you want to guarantee we receive them in a timely manner, go to bit.ly slash bite-sized-pot complete the form. If you would like to schedule a professional learning session for your school or an online meeting, you can send an email to pl at apoe.org. If you'd like more information about professional Oklahoma educators, check out our website, www.apoe.org. 
You can find the links to this podcast and blog under the Resources tab or by going to poebitesizelearning.blogspot.com. POE can also be found on Facebook at apoe.org and on Twitter at prof.okla.edu.